0: That seems to be loud enough. Is that, okay, uh, great. So, um, should we start with a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we give thanks for this beautiful day that we have the chance to come together in fellowship and sharing and learning from one another. May all that we do be to your glory and to your praise. In Christ's name, amen. Um, my wife. Is the fact that she says, I hear enough of you, so uh, (laughs) she's gone to do something else and promised to save me a seat in the service, Uh, so I think I'm, maybe it's better if I stand over on this side. Okay, last week we started this series, it's a five-part series, talking about notable or interesting conversions, and one of the things I was just saying to Jason before this, you could do this with five completely different people, because there are so many rich, Stories of conversion, each very individual, each very distinctive, each offering ways in which we can think about uh, uh, how men and women came to live in Christ, whose lives were utterly transformed. So last week um, we talked about the Church Father Augustine from the 4th and 5th centuries uh, and his remarkable story of a conversion. He'd had a long going through different religious groups. And then finally, uh, much to the uh, pleasure of his mother, who had always been praying for him, he comes through this struggle of knowing what he wants, but not being able to will it. So And he scribes this story that he's in anguish and then struggle. And he goes into the garden and he hears a voice, a childlike voice that says, take opens the scriptures to Romans and then finds that suddenly the word speaks to him and he's transformed and as is his friend Olypius. Well, there's a lot of connections with this week's story because we're going to talk about Martin Luther and in many ways we're going to find parallels with our first story because Martin Luther also went through a period of enormous spiritual anguish before having his his conversion story is a little different. It's not so sudden, in a way th- that uh, Augustine's was. It takes place over a period of time, but there are but there are some striking similarities. Not just because of this spiritual anguish, but Paul's letter to the Romans. This is a bit like the Wesleys later on. Paul's letter to the to the Romans plays a crucial sto- part of the story uh, in Luther's conversion. But there is also another connection, which I'll come to uh, in a moment. So two years ago, uh, there was, I um, I was here giving some talks and we talked largely about the Reformation because in 2017, it was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, when he nailed to the church door his protestation against what he, what were known ways in which people were paying, a bit like Simon Magus, were paying for spiritual benefits. And Luther was outraged by this. He he wrote 95 theses condemning this practice. He nails them to the door, and that was the beginning point of the Reformation. So 500 years ago, um, this this took place, and it was commemorated around the world. So who was Martin Luther? Martin Luther was born to a pretty good family. He was born in 1483. Uh, his father was what we would probably call a businessman. Uh, they were in the mining industry, so that uh, his father was pretty, pretty, not, they were not hugely wealthy, but he, he, was, he was well off enough that he has a lot of ambitions for his son. for his son, his very talented son. He wanted him to be a lawyer. And this is a a familiar theme amongst reformers. Uh, Last time I was here, I talked about John Calvin. And John Calvin also studied to be a lawyer. But Luther's father thought his his son would follow him into the mining business. He would be a lawyer and become a prosperous businessman. But right from youth, Luther was a very sensitive child. Us, he writes an autobiography r- at the end of his life, and he—he's the first stirrings of what will become a very profound religious sense are there in his childhood. So it's a little bit like Augustine. Augustine, right from th- from his early days, had powerful religious sentiments, but he didn't know what to do with them. And Luther was was very similar. So I, he had what I call. Five as a young man, so he's just in his mid twenties, early twenties. um, He has already a remarkable experience, and that is he's traveling along the road, and there's a thunderstorm, and he's terrified. Now this is you know the the world that we're talking about, you know, over five hundred years ago. Thunderstorms were a source of enormous they were seen as um, kind of manifestations of God's displeasure. And being, we love the wilderness, we love being outside, but for people who lived in the medieval times, the wilderness was a frightening place. They found it very scary to be traveling away from the cities, away from villages, because the the natural world is where evil demons lived, it was where you were periled, you you, you could be wrong. So Martin Luther was traveling, he was out in the country and in this thunderstorm and he's terrified. And he's very nearly hit by lightning. He dives into the ditch and he prays to Saint Anna, the mother of Mary. And he says, Saint Anna, if you protect me, I will become And he does. And here's another connection. He goes to a monastic order called the Augustinians. So following on the tradition of Augustine. And these are not just monks, but they're incredibly strict ones. They have an incredibly rigorous regime of prayer and work of the, the constant, what they saw as kind of taming of the body and of the senses. And this appeals to Luther, the young Luther. He decides he wants to be the best possible monk. He's seeking a kind of spiritual fulfillment. But what we also know from Luther's later writings is that he was inclined to what he would call spiritual depression. He was inclined to feeling, to having what we might think of as very black moods, very dark he sought relief from this, and he believed that being as rigorous a monk as he possibly could be, this would bring him spiritual happiness. So he throws himself into this with remarkable zeal. In fact, what we would call almost a kind of fanaticism. He he prays constantly. He attends all the services, and then we have accounts where he would scrub the floor on his which was regarded as kind of the work, the labor of monks. So much so that the head of the religious order of the Augustinians was very concerned about this person, this young man, this extremely serious, (laughs) earnest man, who seemed to be going way beyond what was expected of the other monks in his kind of search for spiritual harmony. This man, who was very much a father figure for very strong sense of a kind of search for a father mentor figure. Because Luther's own father was deeply disappointed when he gave up his studies for law and took up in the church. Luther's father didn't approve of this at all. It wasn't what he had planned for his son. So um, Luther is in this house, but this father uh, figure, the head of the religious order, realizes that he has to do something about this young man because he's worried he's literally going to work himself or pray himself to death because he's become so, uh, again, what we might say kind of fanatical or extreme in his religious practices. He realizes, as many did, that Luther was an extremely gifted person, very bright, a very good student. So he suggests, that Luther should leave the religious house and go to a university where he could study. So he goes, he sends Luther to Wittenberg, which is where we associate Luther. He goes to Wittenberg to a new university there and begins his studies. And he thrives, he's very good at it. He learns Latin and he learns all the different subjects which are required of what we would call bachelor's degree and so much so that he goes on, he does a master's degree and then he goes on and does a doctorate. He becomes a doctor. And this same person who was his father figure, this man named Johann von Staupitz, he says, I don't think you should return to the religious house. I don't think this is a good thing. You are a gifted student and a gifted teacher and you should become a teacher of Bible. And that's what Luther does in Wittenberg. He becomes, and this is an important part of his conversion story. He's already had one first conversion which led to him becoming a monk, but there's another more profound one which is about to happen. So he teaches, this is about the year 1512, so five years before the Reformation will even start, and Luther's teaching, and he teaches the Bible. He's teaching to young men who are going to become priests or, or are going to become teachers in the church. So he's lecturing. He lectures on the Psalms. He lectures from right from the beginning of the book of the Psalms and he lectures all the way through. He lectu- we know that he lectured on the epistles of Paul. Uh, he does a whole series of lectures through letters, and he goes through line by line. So these classes are like every day, he's going line by line through the biblical texts. This is cr- crucial to what's going to happen to him. Luther then has this conflict in 1517, this one with where he objects to the sale of these indulgences. So at this point, he's a relatively obscure university professor. He's not famous. He's not known by anyone. But then he goes and he puts up this protest against this sale of indulgences, what he sees as the sale of spiritual gifts. So how does the story go from there? Well, there we just have to backtrack for a second and say it's about the printing press, the invention of printing. Luther's 95 are printed. This is a communications revolution of the age. Suddenly, it's possible to produce things in mass quantities. And Luther's 95 Theses, they're translated from Latin into German, and they're spread everywhere. And suddenly, people are excited about this, this, this voice for reform of the church. So Luther goes from being an obscure professor in 1517, suddenly he becomes a national figure. So it happens really quickly. And then the church quickly moves to prosecute him, uh, to condemn him. So from 1517, he's caught up in a quarrel, in a, in a process where he's being condemned for raising reform ideas. But important to our story is what happens to Luther. The controversy that starts in 1517, around the 95 theses, begins to have an impact on Luther's own work in teaching the Bible. He realizes that the Pope and the church are going to condemn him, but at the same time, he undergoes a profound religious experience that comes out of his teaching the Bible every day. Crucially, and he talks about this at the end of his life in an autobiography that he writes. Uh, he writes it only a year before he dies in 1546. So in 1545, he writes an autobi a brief autobiography, not as long as by any means as Augustine's Confessions, but he writes this, but he tells us what happens. And the crucial thing that, th- that happens to him at this moment is that he's reading. Paul's letter to the Romans. And in there he comes to the line, and the just shall live by faith. And this has a transformative effect on him. What is that effect? Well, because up until that point, Luther had been going through tremendous spiritual anguish. The more he had Bible, the more he came to view God as a fierce judge, an unforgiving father who demands righteousness of his people but yet, and this is following from Augustine, we are so sinful, we cannot possibly fulfill God's justice or righteousness. So Luther felt that same feeling that he'd had as a monk he still had very strongly even when he was being and teaching Bible to students, he said, I am a sinner. I I fall so short of what God demands of me, that I should be righteous. And as a result, Luther once again went into a kind of spiritual depression. He even describes in his biography that he became angry at God. He became angry that this just, just So Luther had had a kind of argument with God. He felt that, you know, he felt this is completely unfair. I am condemned by my sins and there's nothing I can do about it. This is where the conversion experience happens. He comes and he finds in Romans what he's been looking for. And that, Judge who demands that we be righteous. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that God has reached out to us in Christ, and that that is the gospel, and that through the gift of faith, we are made righteous in Christ. This is Luther's transformative moment the righteousness that god demands is actually a gift to us it is what has god has given it to us in christ and that our what god has made possible is that our response in faith is all that's asked so luther comes to this luther's conversion experience is a discovery of faith literally that faith Back on his life, and he said, You know, when I was a monk, I was trying as hard as I could be, and I could never find happiness. And then he said, Well, that's why I couldn't find happiness. It's not about us doing God's righteousness, earning merit, or deserving God's forgiveness. What he what redeems us it is God who has reached out to us and God has given the gift of faith and in that faith we are made whole in Christ and suddenly Luther describes this as a joyous event he has found the gospel the gospel in Christ and he finally found the spiritual rest that he had been now, at the same time, he's an enormously controversial figure. He's become this person who's voicing the reform of the church, and now he's voicing a kind of theology that's at odds with the teaching of the church. He be, and he becomes, by 1520, so right after he's having this experience, by 1520, he's excommunicated. He's thrown out of the church. And that's the beginning of the Reformation. The building of a church that is built that is its foundation is on Luther's own conversion experience, the discovery that we live by faith alone, that works good works do not merit us uh, favor in God's eyes, that God's gracious gift to us is what redeems us, and that that is at the very heart of the Reformation. You can good works are excellent work. Hold to look after the poor, to care for the widows, to care for for orphans, to build God's kingdom in the world. Yes, God expects us to carry out His justice in the world, but you have to have it in the right order. That we live from faith, and the and that we do good works out of our faith, out of the good news way around that we do these good works in order to deserve Christ's uh, uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. And so that's Luther's discovery that faith is first. Faith makes us whole. It transforms our relationship to God because Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. It's not about our righteousness because we don't have any. It's Christ's righteousness that makes us So this is for Luther, this this realization which comes to him is not only the beginning of the Reformation, but for him, the beginning of a joyous Christian life. He now realizes that instead of trying to make himself as good as possible and then inevitably failing, it's about rejoicing. Therefore, where is this message contained? But in the Bible, in scripture. So scripture contains the whole of what God has revealed to us the story of our salvation. So Luther builds this reformation around the idea that it is scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, and of course, Christ alone. You don't need all these other things of the church. You don't need priests acting on your behalf. Each person has a direct relationship to God in Christ. Each person, Luther uses this term, the priesthood of all believers. As believers, we're all priests and we're all called to be followers of Christ. We don't have to have special priests that do it for us or institutions of the church that do it for us. We are all Spiritually equal. Of course, he will go on and say, We need people who are trained to be preachers of the word, and we need an organized church. But essentially, his message is that Christians are free, and they're free and spiritually equal. And that is at the heart of the Reformation. But that story comes out of Luther's own conversion experience. So, in many ways, the story of the Reformation is the story of Luther finding spiritual rest and being transformed into the Christian life. So I think I'll I'll leave it there um, so I can give people time to talk. I'm happy to say more about the story uh, if you want. Um, There are obviously many other aspects of the Reformation, but that I think is the, the kind of heart of it. For Luther, it was the transformation from a sense of having to be as good as possible, to be the most pious, to be the most rigorous, discovering God's free grace, and that was for him the conversion what happens between this person who is, uh, is a monk and then becomes a professor who's consumed by this idea of, of that trying to be worthy in the face of what he saw as, a, as an angry God. And l- for Luther, God was angry and, he, and Luther was terrified, terrified. So how does that get to the 95 Theses? Well, Luther is in Wittenberg, <coughs> he's a professor there, there's this man named John Tetzel who's selling these indulgences. Literally, pieces of paper that, you p- that the, even the poor people are paying money and getting promises that their beloved in purgatory will receive spiritual benefits. So literally, it's a kind of sale of spiritual benefits to these people. Luther has not yet had his conversion w- at this point when this is, when this is happening. But as a priest and a monk, he is shocked by this idea that people are being forced to give over the very meager resources that they have, their little bits of money, for what he says is a fraud. That this is, that you, and he he hasn't yet had his, his, but he's very aware that these people are being asked to pay money instead of actually performing themselves any spiritual activity or spiritual, or praying, or doing good works. He says, you know, this is, this is like a kind of credit card of Christianity. They're just paying their money and hoping to get the benefits of it. He says, no, you have to live the Christian life, each person. So he hasn't yet come to his own reconciliation, but as a priest, he's objecting to the idea that the spiritual teachings of, of Christ are being sold to people who can't even afford this. And that's what he objects to. That's what, that's when, when he writes his 95 Theses, he objects to this, the sale of this. And that begins the process that in his own life will lead to a complete uh, reversal of the way he even understands the relationship between God and humanity. Logical, it's, it's actually a pastoral observation. Because these poor people are being ripped off by, by someone who's, because these indulgences are being sold to raise money for the church. So it's a, it's a swindle. So he's, he's act, his actions is not simply an intellectual objection to this. He thinks the people are being misled. And that's what he objects to. He objects to it as a priest. But then he starts to formulate the theological arguments as to why this is wrong. So it is a theological question, but he is outraged as a as a as a priest um, who who sees these people being te- having their money taken from them in fraudulent ways. Yes, please. So when is the translation into German in the the of in the Bible is not till a little bit later, in 1522. He go. He's lock, He's he's abduct, he's kind of hidden off in a in a castle. And he, he, because he's by this point, he's an outlaw and he's condemned by the church. It's very dangerous for him. And so his friends take him away to a, a, a castle. And he spends almost two years in the castle. And while he's in the castle, he takes uh, the New Testament, which is in Greek, and he translates it into German. So that in 1522 is, is Luther's translation of the New Testament into into German and then over the next following years um, uh, he trans- he and a group of people translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into German and the first complete German Bible so old and New Testament together is uh, appears in 1534 that's 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 the year of the, f- the first German so just to make sure i get this right why why the the sola or the alone are are so important or yeah yeah okay so the 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 first um, of of that that for for luther the in a way the first discovery comes out of his own work as a as a teacher of the bible and once Controversy starts with the with the with the church over the indulgences. He comes to a position where he, s- he says, There is no place in the Bible that defends this practice of indulgences. And then the, this, the, the whole controversy spins into being. But Luther quickly comes to the position, and so it begins with sola scriptura. And he says, You have to show me on the basis of the Bible where I'm wrong. And so in a way, Sola Scriptura for him is, 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 the, is the tipping point. But then once he had that lens on the word of God, that leads to the, the kind of, they're very closely connected, but leads him very strongly to this sense of Sola Christus, Christ alone. But that goes hand in hand. With his understanding of what Christ does, what the what the Bible actually reveals about Christ, and again, for 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 Luther, Paul's letter to the Romans is the theological core of, the, of of the New Testament of the of the Bible. So he's focusing very much on on Romans, also Hebrews, but on Romans, and he says, what what does Paul teach there? That but that we are justified by. Christ So once that once that happens, the 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 role of of you know what the question is what is what then what is our human response to that? That human response is faith. It's very interesting that he takes the line uh, that we are justified by faith, but when he translates the Bible in 1522, he adds the word alone. So this is this is this is this is developing slowly. But he begins with sola scriptura. It moves to sola, solus Christus, and then evolves over a period of time his understanding of faith and grace alone. So, they, so it, there isn't a kind of necessarily chronological order, but they spring out from from that order. Yeah. big story, but I'll just do it carefully. The Turks are pushing in what's now modern day Hungary and, and the Balkans. They're pushing up against and they come right, as you say, right to the gates of, of Vienna. In Luther's view, the Turks are alongside the papacy Antichrist. He sees this through the lens of the book of Revelation. The Turks, this Luther believes that the Turkish invasions along with the appearance of Antichrist in Rome are the signs that these are the last days. Luther, d- Luther literally believed that he was living in the last days. Christ was about to come. And that's why there was all this revolution. That's why Antichrist was unmasked and that's why the Turks looked like they were going to overrun Europe. So th- those events play a huge role in Lu- what Luther actually thinks is happening in the Reformation. He doesn't see this as the beginning of a you know, new, brave new world. He sees this as the very last moments before Christ is about to come. And now it's a full-fledged battle between the forces of Antichrist and Christ. And he sees himself as a prophet of the word. He you know, makes the connection between himself and Elijah. He sees himself as a prophet in the last days. And so the Turks who are, everybody thinks the Turks are about to move all the way across. They're going to, they're not going to stop in Vienna. They're going to keep coming. And, and, and for Luther, these are just the signs that uh, the last days are here. He also believed in this early stage that the Jews would convert. So these were all for him through the signs of, of, of revelation. These were, the, these were the symbols of the last times. So, so he sees himself in a kind of struggle a huge struggle of, of th- when Christ's word has been renewed and the forces of Antichrist have been unleashed and the, his role is to preach the word. But the Turks, but then there's a, th- very quickly, there's a, there's a practical effect of the Turks invading and that is the um, Holy Roman Emperor who is defending against the Turks needs the support of all the princes for their military and that allows the prince who protects Luther to bargain for Luther's safety. So there's a kind of political context that allows Luther to, to, to uh, do what he's doing under the protection of a prince. And one of the reasons that prince is able to give him his protection is because the emperor needs the support of him against the Turks. So it, it plays out, ar- but so there's an apocalyptic notion to them, but there's also a very real political version. Yes, please. No, 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 it's, I mean, the 16th century will see a vast reform of the Catholic Church as well. uh, And many of these practices, like indulgences, were completely removed. So Catholicism itself will also go through. um, There is something called the Catholic Reformation, which many Protestants don't realize. But there is a Catholic Reformation where there's a complete reform of, of what they see as abuses within the church. And that's where you get things like Jesuits and this yes please when did, when did it actually become other than the catholic church i guess did, i mean Luther's intention was not to no the church, no, the church. no absolutely not it, yeah church, yeah which happened, but yeah had the church already splintered by that no it hadn't i mean Luther always maintained he was a good catholic oh. you know and he said and he says i didn't leave the church the church under the papacy he makes a distinction between what he regards as the true catholic church which he believes he always stays in. He never thinks he's starting a new church. He believes that he has stayed true to the ancient faith, but the Catholic church uh, or you know, the institutional church under the Pope as antichrist has revealed itself to be evil and corrupt and wrong. So it it's not that he left, but he believes it left. Left like the original. It, that it, it was no longer the true church, and so, Luther never said that, you know, I'm starting, you know, it's like we would say today, I don't like your organization, I'm gonna go and do a new startup, you know. Luther never believed that's what he was doing. He believed that he was he was remaining true to the ancient teaching, the biblical teaching of the church and that the uh, this corrupt church of antichrist was wrong and had to be uh, rejected. But uh, the more practical answer to your question is that his own, what we would start to call doesn't really appear until about 1525, 1526. So it takes a while before a visible alternative church uh, appears. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In in these early years, he writes a work called Jesus Christ was born a Jew. Because he says that in these last days they will convert, but at the end of his life, right around just before he dies, he writes an extremely vitriolic, anti-Semitic work called "On the Jews and Their Lies," and at that bo- and nobody can quite understand why. He, I mean, he writes terrible things like their synagogues should be torn down, they should be thrown out of the out of the out of the cities, they should be they should be killed. I mean, it's it's it's. The worst by thing ever he wrote, and probably one of the worst things of the of the Reformation. And people, and of course, his his language was taken up by many anti-Semitic, including Nazis. Nazis embraced Luther's writings on on, on Jews as part of their anti-Semitism. Um, but it's one of the you know major problems of the anniversary of of twenty seventeen of the five hundred is what to make, how to deal with Luther's. Life. How do you explain it? It, It's very difficult to explain, except that it seems to be an intense disappointment that those last days didn't come, and that a heat where his original optimism that the Jews would convert didn't happen. And so then, didn't happen, you know, by the end of his life, they hadn't hadn't converted. And so therefore, he sort of wrote them off as stiff necked Christ. Alongside what he writes about the peasants in 1525, it's the most brutal thing that he, that he writes. Yes, please. <laughs> Hugely. He believed that, that Martin Luther was the great prophet of the Reformation. And uh, Calvin's first work, which he publishes, he's of the next generation, so he's quite a bit younger but his first work, which is his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he writes the first version of it as a young man, and he completely shapes it around Luther's catechism. So he's very influenced by, and all his life, um, he remains, he th- you know, he says, as we talked about, Luther himself was a deeply problematic person. And there were many things he did that were wrong. And in fact, he said that, that Luther was responsible for dividing the church. But theologically, he believed Luther was a titan. Well, there were strong movements in the late Middle Ages of, of against the Catholic Church, but they were mostly within the Catholic Church. But I mean, the whole the whole theme of that you raise of clerical corruption, the fact that many clergy had children—they they weren't allowed to marry, but they still had children, and you say they often sort of semi-legal uh, uh, wives, um, but they weren't—they al- weren't officially allowed. To but there are, there are plenty of, in England, there are what are called the Lollards. Uh, in, in, in German lands or what's now Czechos, you know, Czech Republic, there were these man followers of Jan Hus. So there were strong movements against what they saw as the corruption of the church. But even within the Catholic church, there were strong movements to try to deal with these questions of corruption. That they, did they were to some extent successful Luther is actually picking up on a long medieval tradition of criticizing the corruption within the church. The problem he faced was that that so you know corruption and interests were embedded in the papacy, which was very which was very powerful. But he's not the first to be criticizing the, 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 the corruption uh, of, of the church. There are, there are m- movements within the medieval world that are trying to that are trying to deal with it. But Luther has an enormous success. In Bible Luther uses is the Bible of the medieval Church, which is the Vulgate, the Latin Bible. So that's the that's his. But by the time Luther is is uh, becomes a professor, it's now you're getting the first Greek and Hebrew Bibles, or, and Erasmus is the person here who produces a Greek New Testament, and that's a huge revolution because suddenly the the Latin Bible, which is full of mistakes and full of problems, uh, is being by the Greek and the Hebrew, and that's one of the places where you start to get these uh, um, differences theological interpretations of what the Bible actually says. Because they're saying we go back to the Greek, and this is what Luther says: we go back to the Greek. Luther knew both Greek and Hebrew, and when you go back to the Greek and the Hebrew, you say you find it says something different from what the traditional Latin Bible has been saying. So he, so his his in reading of the Bible is by a change in culture where suddenly the church has access to scripture in in original languages. but So he then translates the Bible into German from the Greek, and then he translates it with some help from others. The Old Testament from Hebrew, but the Catholic church decrees that the Latin, the traditional Latin Bible is the only authentic Bible. It rejects this notion of using Greek and Hebrew and says that the ancient, which goes back to Jerome in the 5th century, the Latin Bible is the authentic Bible of the church. So you're you're quite right. They're literally using different Bibles. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's the, well, there is a tradi- there is a there is a tradition that arises out of the Reformation. Uh, Luther um, controversially changes the shape of the canon of the Bible. He puts books in different orders from the traditional order. But then you get, for instance, Protestants uh, make a decision about what to do with the books of the Apocrypha. Um, so you get uh, two different traditions that arise between Catholics and Protestants, and even within Protestants there are differences. Um, Go to um, a Catholic wedding, and they read the Book of Tobit. You know, then a, so you you do have different Bibles, but that arises out of this this controversy around the shape of the Bible that the Reformation brings up. So Protestants and Catholics uh, end up with a, a different version of the text, and and the the translation remains crucial because you have two different tra- traditions of translating the text, which gives you, as you read them, two quite different versions of the Bible. And um, Protestants, at least uh, formally, hold to their text uh, in terms of sola scriptura. The Catholics have a different attitude, and that is the Bible is interpreted within the tradition and structure of the church. So that comes out of the Reformation, two different attitudes towards the authority of the Bible. So does Council of Trent, Council, of Trent, Council of of, Trent yeah. Council of Trent decides, which is the, count, the reforming council of the Catholic Church, decides that there are two sources of authority. It rejects the Protestant idea of Scripture alone, and says there are two sources of authority: Scripture and tradition. Yes, yes, they de- they they have they they declare, which, and that's where they declare that the Latin Bible is the official Bible of the Church, and they reject this idea of. Translations from Hebrew and Greek. And so, is is a Catholic, is entirely a Catholic. Uh, with their what? That well, that just emerges over. I mean, it, and again, within Protestantism, it, but that they 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 don't have a council that decides this. That's through you know you get the production of the King James, the Geneva Bible, the King, and so that's a that's a process of of Protestant tradition. But there's no counts. The Catholics decide what exactly the Bible is. The Protestants never have a council because they're not divided. They're too divided to do that. One last question. One yeah. question. Then, then, anybody else wants a fr- stay for a bit. I can. I'll be late for the service, but that's okay. Yeah. Who? Uh, yeah. Sorry. Th- no. you're right, you're right. It was absolutely not his intention that the church should fragment. But one of the problems, one of the reasons why the church fragments into all these different confessions is because it has at its core this idea of scripture alone. But that raises the problem, which we still have in the church today, who interprets? Who's correct? And so you get, in the early Reformation, Luther on one side, and the Swiss reformer, Huldrych Zwingli on the other, saying that when Christ says, this is my body given for you, they have two completely different interpretations of what he means by this is my body. Luther says, we don't need to go into this, but Luther has one view of the Lord's Supper, which emphasizes that Christ is somehow physically present. Zwingli says, no, he can only be spiritually present. The important point is you, the, tr- the Reformation fragments almost from the start because you, you make scripture but you've taken away the church that decides what scripture means and suddenly you have diversities of interpretations which is why you have so many different Protestant churches.